When our kids were in grade school, we decided we wanted to take them on a trip of a lifetime. We'd take them to uh, the Holy Land so that they could see Israel. They could see uh, where it all happened, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked, and David, and Jesus, and the apostles. And we thought, you know, uh, to really make this trip memorable, we were going to buy each of them a, a little digital camera so they could record their trip and all of their memories for their trip. Uh, but what we discovered as we got into the trip was that um, our daughter, rather than taking pictures of Jerusalem or the Sea of Galilee or Bethlehem, she took pictures of cats. <laughs> all the cats of Israel, everywhere we, we went, she would stop and she would take pictures of cats. And when we got home, she made for herself an album, uh, not of the Dead Sea or Caesarea, but of cats, all the cats of Israel. And every time I turned around, I would see her and she was picking up these cats. And they were nasty cats. They, were, they had fleas and they were mangy and they had clumps of hair that were gone and they had disease and all kinds of, just, they were just gross. And she's like, Daddy, can we take them home? <laughs> well, for so many reasons. Uh, no, first of all, they're cats. You know, but she's like, oh, I just, I love them and I love them all. And she wanted to bring them to herself and, and, and have them be part of our family because she loves cats. And she, want, she wanted to rescue all the cats of Israel. And um, I use that illustration um, for a reason. Um, I wonder, and you probably never thought about this before, but my mind comes up with just these kind of crazy random thoughts. What would be required to actually save the cat population of Israel, right? What would you have to do to, to rescue the cat population of Israel? You'd, you'd probably have to provide them with, with food and a better shelter and medicine and unconditional love, and you'd have to provide cats with something that no cat has ever had, uh, a purpose and meaning in life. I know I just divided the audience. Some of you are now for me and some of you are against me. But hang with me. Here's the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is sometimes the church is like a gang of feral cats. Not our church, of course. But some churches sometimes are like a gang of feral cats. They bite and scratch and claw at one another and they're diseased. They're not healthy. What does it take for the church to become healthy? and flourishing and vibrant. Because the Bible tells us we're not supposed to be like a gang of feral cats. We're supposed to be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, an aroma of Jesus Christ to the world. And so what I want to talk about this morning is uh, seven marks or seven characteristics of a healthy, vibrant, flourishing church. And throughout this talk, I'm going to challenge each of us personally, individually, but then also us corporately. What do we need to do to make sure that our church is healthy? and flourishing and vibrant. Seven marks of a flourishing church. I want to start in Luke chapter 15. Read with me in verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance." 
Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. First mark of a flourishing church is this we seek the lost. We seek the lost. Three parables are actually told in Luke chapter 15, not just two. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. They're all making exactly the same point, and it's this. God loves people who are lost. He, he's seeking out people who are lost. And when one that's lost is found, what happens? God says, now is the moment for a party. In fact, right now, God is calling together his angels, and he's calling together the saints who have gone before us, and he's saying, let's celebrate, let's rejoice, let's have a party, let's sing, let's dance, let's feast, because that's what God is like. And what Jesus is saying is, that's what your heavenly Father wants you to be like, because that's what he is like. He seeks out those who are lost. He loves those who are lost. He rejoices when the lost are found in a healthy, flourishing, vibrant church loves the lost and seeks after the lost. Now, when I was a kid, I would lose things. And I would go to my mom and I'd say, Mom, I can't find my shoes. I can't find my pants. I can't find my hockey stick. And my mom would say, well, did you look in such and such a place? And I'd say, of course, I looked there first. And she'd say, well, did you pray? <laughs> oh, brother. No, Mom, I didn't pray. She goes, well, you know, God knows where everything is. Why don't we just stop and pray? And she'd take my hands, and we would stop, and we would pray for my lost shoes or my lost pants or my lost hockey stick, and we'd pray. She said, you know, God knows where everything is, and God can show you where that thing is. And we would pray, and then my mom would drop my hands, and she would go to the place that I said that I'd looked, and there it was. And she found, you know, it's just like magic every single time. Now, what's true, though, for my mom with these physical items was also true for her spiritually. When I was in first grade, we lived in Oregon, and a new family moved in next door to us. And my mom went next door, and she knocked on the door to meet them. And the, the wife and mother, she, she opened the door, and she looked very distraught. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I'm going through something right now. Our family's really going through a hard time. I just, I just don't have the capacity to meet the neighbors. And my mom said, I'm so sorry. Would, would you like to tell me what's going on? She said, well, no one could understand, but my husband was just diagnosed with a brain tumor. And my mom said, when I was pregnant with our second child, my son, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. So when my mom got pregnant with me, they discovered my dad had a brain tumor. And they thought my dad would die. He didn't die. He's still around. But my grandfather built a room onto his house to take care of me and my mom and my sister because they thought he passed away. And so my mom understood that fear and that anxiety of having a, a husband who's just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And she related that story to this woman, and there was just this bond of friendship that formed immediately. And in the context of that relationship as it grew, my mom was able to share the hope that she has in Jesus. She shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with this lady. And then the woman said, would you tell my kids that because they're living in fear? So she sh shared the gospel with the children, and the children trusted Christ. And then she got to share the gospel with the husband, and the husband trusted Christ. The whole family trusted Christ before he went to be with Jesus Christ. And I say that because my mom would tell you, I'm not an evangelist. But she cares about the lost. And my first challenge to us is that we would ask God to break our hearts for the lost. And I read a statistic recently that 95% of church programs are for the members. Did you catch that? 95% 
of the way that we spend our budget and our time and our facilities is for the members. And you want to create an unhealthy church, turn inward. Right? When the church is turned inward, it becomes unhealthy. For us to be a, a flourishing church, we need to care more about who's not with us today than who is in the room. So I'm challenging you, this semester, say, God, would you just break my heart for the lost? Would you give me eyes for the people around me who don't know Jesus? And would you just give me a, a, just a passion for them to be a part of your family? That's the first mark of a flourishing church. Second, we proclaim the gospel. When we find someone who's lost, what do they need to hear? First and foremost, they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to get to the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The apostle Paul knew so much theology, greatest theologian the church has ever known, but he said, here's what's first and foremost. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. He did that to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, and you need to believe in him, receive Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So everywhere Paul went, this is what he did first. He got to the gospel first. And everywhere that Paul went, he was attacked because people said, Paul, you're making it too easy. And he said, no, it really is that easy. It is a free gift. You don't earn God's love and favor. You don't earn Jesus' forgiveness. You simply receive it as a free gift. You need to stop trying. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, we need to get to the gospel. We need to be clear about the gospel. Because the gospel, that's that one thing that we can offer to the world that no one else can give to the world. So should we dig wells? Yeah, but do it in Jesus' name because the world can dig well. Should we feed the poor? Yes, but do it in Jesus' name with the gospel because the world can also provide food for the poor. Should you mow your neighbor's lawn? Yeah, but in Jesus' name, right? We, we, have, we have the gospel and no one else has the gospel. So let's get to the gospel and let's not muddy the gospel. Let's make the gospel clear. It's an interesting comparison if you, you want to go back and read uh, Philippians 1 and then read Galatians 1. In Philippians 1, there are people that are preaching the gospel from envy and strife, Paul says. Because, you know, for whatever reason, they're jealous of me and my ministry, so they're preaching the gospel so that they can get more people trusting Christ than I have trusting Christ. He goes, you know, whatever. Only then in every way Christ is proclaimed. They're preaching the gospel clearly. That's all that matters. I'm not going to worry about their motives. Galatians chapter 1, there are people preaching the gospel, but they're adding good works to the gospel. They're adding, you know, you've got to uh, be circumcised, you've got to keep the law, right? You've got to attend church, you've got to get baptized, you've got to sing in the choir, you've got to dig wells, you've got to mow your neighbor's lawn, you've got you've to believe and earn God's favor. And Paul says about them, not what then, only in every way they're doing a great job. He says, let them be accursed. Oh, well, you know, they go to hell. Super harsh language. Doesn't really pop out in your English translation. Paul is angry because they're leading away people. people they're leading people away from a, a simple trust in Jesus Christ. They're adding to the gospel. So church, we've got to get to the gospel. and We've got to make the gospel clear. The name of our church is Grace Bible Church. It was chosen on purpose because one of our pillars is Grace. What grace means is God loves you unconditionally. 
God loves you unconditionally. He knows all of your faults and all of your fears and all of your failures, and he chooses to love you because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. So God doesn't love you more when you have a good day, and he doesn't love you less when you have a bad day. He just loves you. That's grace. Now, when you know that you are that secure in a relationship, that gives you courage to work on the things that might need to change in your life. But you don't have that courage until you know you are completely and utterly secure in God's love for you. That is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So my next challenge for you is this. Have you received God's grace through Jesus? Or are you still trying to earn God's love? Or have you had that moment where you say, you know what, I'm, I, I give up. I'm going to stop trying. Thank you, Jesus. Let me encourage you, if you've never had that moment, that today you stop trying to earn God's love and you just receive it. Now, if you have received God's love, do you know how to share the gospel clearly? Do you know how to share the gospel clearly without adding anything extra to it? Can you get to the gospel? If you don't know how to share the gospel, come up, talk with me afterwards, talk to Cooper. He'd love to tell you how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk to Victoria. We'll help you learn how to just tell your story and the gospel. Get to the gospel. What's a healthy, vibrant, flourishing church? Well, our hearts break for the lost. We love the lost because that's what the Father is like. Then when we find the lost, we get to the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. Third, we multiply disciples. We multiply disciples. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is called the Great Commission. This is the mission of the church. So the church doesn't get to pick its mission. Jesus says, this is your mission. Reads like this. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Meaning, what I say goes. Right? I, 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 I'm the one who tells you why you exist and why you're here. And here it is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or if I can retranslate that a little bit for you. He says, uh, As you are going make disciples. It's a participle. As you are going, that is, as you are seeking out the lost, like the Father does, make disciples. Help people become like Jesus. Or we, we say it around here like this. This is just our little slogan. And you'll notice uh, it's just evangelism and discipleship. It's just sharing the gospel and helping people grow in their faith. We help people find and follow Jesus. Uh, might even be better if we say, would say, we help people get found by Jesus, right? Because Jesus is seeking them, and we're entering into a relationship with them so that they can understand that Jesus is chasing after them. Jesus is initiating with them. We want to get to the gospel, but then we want to help people grow into maturity so that they become more and more and more like Jesus. A disciple is a, a learner or a follower. Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, teach them to become like me. So we help people find Jesus, but we also want to help people follow Jesus. We want, we want people to, to uh, grow into maturity. What happens for a church that becomes unhealthy is it becomes uh, inwardly focused. 95% of the programs for, are for the members. And then the members become inwardly focused, and what they care about is their own maturity. They're not caring about the next generation. A healthy church cares about the next generation. One of my uh, life verses is Psalm 71, 18. It says, 
Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Even when I am old and gray, right? I, I get it. I'm moving that direction. Do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. So my, my goal for my life is that I will, I will never actually retire, retire, right? I'm, I may stop working a job that I get paid for, but for the rest of my life, I want to introduce people to Jesus and I want to help them learn how to feed themselves and I want to help give them a vision to feed others so that others can feed others. I want to be a disciple maker and I want to end my life like that. I want to fall into the grave being a disciple maker. Now, that's how I want to end my life. And I realize, um, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to be shocked some of you, but probably half of you are on the downward side of life, okay? There's, there's, there's less in front of you than there is behind you. I remember when I was uh, 53 years old, I'm 58 now, I was 53 years old, and uh, I told my kids, uh, I'm going to buy a Jeep, I said, I'm going to buy a Jeep because this is how I'm going to express my midlife crisis. And I'm going to put the top down. I'm going to drive around. It's going to be really cool. I'm going to, drive, I'm going to have a Jeep. It's going to be awesome, right? And, and uh, my son looked at me. He said, Dad, you're, you're 53. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. I'm 53. He goes, so unless you think you're going to make it to 106, you're past midlife. <laughs> I was like, hold on. Let me change my will. <laughs> so I get it, right? That's, that's, where, that's where I am. But I want to always be thinking about and giving my life for the next generation. It's one of the pillars of our church, the next generation. So many studies have been done on this. It, it, it's, it's consistent data throughout that most people trust in Jesus Christ before their 18th birthday. The last study I read said 85% of people trust Christ before their 18th birthday. 95% of people trust Christ before their 30th birthday. So, uh, you know, without apology, we wanna, we're bending toward the next generation. I'm going to step off the scene, and I want, I want to know that behind me there are those who are following Jesus, loving Jesus, and reproducing their lives in others. Now, that said, the next great disciple-maker might be your 75-year-old neighbor. And maybe he's been laboring his whole life to earn God's love, and all of a sudden you present the gospel to him, and he realizes, I don't have to earn it any longer. He just receives it. I remember when I was doing college ministry, I was talking about the grace of God. There was a student sitting on the front row, and he was raised in just this really harsh, demanding home where nothing was ever good enough. And that's kind of how he saw God. And we begin talking about the grace of God, that he just loves you right as you are, and you don't have to earn his love or favor. And finally, the grace of God clicked in his mind, and he sat on the front row, and he just started to weep. Because that's how the grace of God, it's transforming, it's powerful. And he wept. Because he received the grace of God. So imagine that 75-year-old, he finally understands God's grace and he says, I've just got to share this with everybody. And he begins to tell all of your neighbors about Jesus Christ. And the neighbors begin to trust Christ. And he teaches those neighbors how to feed themselves from the word. And then they get fired up about the gospel. And they begin to make disciples, right? And they make disciples. It's the next generation. So the, the essence of our vision as a church is spiritual multiplication. It's the great commission. So my challenge to you is, are you a spiritual multiplier? Are you a disciple maker? That's the normal Christian life. And maybe you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I don't know enough, I'm not mature enough, I don't have enough to give away. I'd say, you know what? You're never gonna feel like you know enough. You're never gonna feel like you're mature enough. 
I had, I had a student walk up to me after service and say exactly that. She goes, yeah, I just don't, just don't know, feel like I'm mature enough. I go, you never will. You're, you're, and the fact is you're not adequate. But Jesus is adequate in you. So do you know the gospel? Give it away. Do you have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible this morning, as you walk out, go to the, the Welcome Center, grab a Bible. You can leave today with a Bible. Find a friend, sit down, open a John, and say, hey, would you read the Bible with me? Let's just see what God's word has to say about how our lives should be lived. And you begin to grow in maturity with one another. And you begin to cast vision for one another to reproduce your life in Jesus in someone else. That's the normal spiritual life. So are you a disciple maker? Are you reproducing spiritually? That's Jesus's only strategy. He could, he could have written the gospel in the clouds and say, you know, this is the, here's the four spiritual laws in clouds, right? Would have been really efficient. But instead, he picked 11 kind of shady characters and said, you're going to do it. And then they're going to do it after you, and, and generation after generation. And that's my only strategy. It's just the church reproducing spiritually. So are you a spiritual multiplier? Now, I want to expand that challenge a little bit. Maybe you noticed when we were reading Matthew 28, it says, go therefore, or as you are going, make disciples of all the nations. That is, the, the scope of the Great Commission is all nations. The scope of the Great Commission com includes people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's your opportunity, and that's my opportunity. Maybe you'll go to someone or some nation that's never heard the gospel. Maybe you won't. But have you ever had that moment where you thought, why not me? How about it? Why, why not you? Maybe this is the Sunday where you go, gosh, maybe God's calling me to be that one who leaves and takes the gospel to people who've never heard. You say, well, yeah, I don't know how my family would feel about it, and I've already got a job, and I'm about to graduate, and I'm going to get married, Okay. Have you given God your entire life? Have you given him your relationships? Have you given him your future? Why not you? Remember hearing a guy say, well, you know, are you willing to go but planning to stay? Or are you planning to go but willing to stay? Uh, I will tell you, Tristy and I got to the point of buying our tickets to leave two times and God pulled us back. And so my point in telling you that is, if you move toward those who've never heard the gospel, God can certainly redirect you and pull you back. But are you willing? I mean, like deep, deep, deep at a heart level to say, here am I, send me. And if God pulls you back and you don't go, okay. Are you praying for those who've never heard the gospel? Are you praying for those who go because you're not going? Are you giving sacrificially toward the nations? Healthy, vibrant, multiplying, growing churches are outwardly focused, not inwardly focused just toward the members, not just toward our community, but also toward the nations who have never heard. Here at Grace, uh, we set aside 20% of our personnel budget goes to missionaries. And when we get a raise, they get a raise, right? And when our budget goes up, we give more. And that started at the very beginning of the church, the inception of the church. The pastor at the time's name was Joe Wall, um, he was married, had a young family, a couple kids, and uh, each week they'd collect an offering and they would pay Joe, but they couldn't pay him every week, so they just didn't have enough members. So he didn't always get a full salary, 
And Joe said, you know, one of the marks of a flourishing church is that it cares about the nations. We're going to have a missions conference, and we're going to start supporting missionaries. And they're like, well, we can't even pay you every week, so it doesn't matter. If we take a step out in faith, obedient to what God has called us to do, he will provide. He'll provide for the church. He'll provide for my family. So they had their first missions conference, brought in four families, and they committed to uh, providing for those families, supporting them uh, $10 a month. a month. It was a huge number at the time, and Joe wasn't even getting a salary every week, and God blessed. And God has provided for us because I feel like we're in the center of his will, caring for the nation. So make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm going to expand that challenge a little bit broader to us corporately. There are two really powerful Great Commission strategies The first is personal disciple-making. That is every single one of us spiritually reproducing. But the second is church planting. Multiplying communities that make disciples that make disciples that multiply more communities that make disciples. That's one of the most powerful Great Commission strategies that God has given to the church. Churches should multiply because healthy organisms multiply. Healthy, Healthy organisms leave a generation behind them. In the United States of America, currently, there are about uh, 4,000 churches closed every year, and 1,000 new churches are planted. Did you get that? 4,000 closed, 1,000 new churches. Uh, With current population growth trends, just to keep up with population growth, we should be planting 2,000 new churches a year. Right, so kind of underwater a little bit, right? So we want to be a church planting church. We want to multiply uh, churches that have disciple making as the very center of their mission and purpose. So I want to give you a little bit of, of history of, uh, of Grace Bible Church. And um, I'm going to tell you right now, like, I love our church. I, I, I just, I do. I love our church. I love our people. I love our leadership. I love our staff. I think we have the best staff on the planet. I just, I love the people I work with. I like our mission and our vision. I like our history. So um, you're just going to have to hang tight for a minute and let me talk about the history of our church that I love, okay? Um, I'm going to skip Revelation for just a second. So, all right, 1965 is when Grace Bible Church began. It was a great year. It was an amazing year. That's the year that I was born. 1965, Grace Bible Church started, started down in Bryant. And uh, really began to grow, started small, held their missions conference, began to multiply with people who were like-minded in the Great Commission, also like-minded in having students as a part of their fellowship. So from day one, students came. Students came. Wanting to reach the campus, uh, we moved closer to the campus, bought the property straight across the street. So Grace Bible Church was uh, in that, that shoebox where the college ministry meets now. Just that was all of Grace Bible Church, that, that building right there. And then Grace began to grow even more and filled that out. And we needed space. And miraculously, God provided us with this piece of property right here, straight across the street. At the time, I didn't even know that uh, I thought the city owned it because the city was uh, using it for uh, soccer fields, but it was, it was actually owned by the Catholic diocese. The Pope was going to be coming into Texas. They needed to raise some money, and they sold us this property. Okay. So we bought this property. We built this building, moved in in uh, 1995, and 
uh, grace continued to grow. In fact, there were, there were Sundays like in, in uh, September when all the students came back where we had abs- absolutely like every seat was full and there were students sitting on the stage. It was really cool. It's also like very dangerous according to the fire marshal, but it was so fun. <laughs> Because it, it, it was just exciting, and it was explosive, and we, we had this conversation, like, well, how do, we, how do we manage this growth? And we had a moment where we're like, you know, that's the wrong question. The question is, how, how can we multiply? Because that's what the church does. And if, we, if we're making disciples, then we're going to grow, and then we're going to need to multiply. So, you know, we talked about church planning for a long time. I became senior pastor in 2004. We talked about it for a long time. So, well, that's what we want our missionaries to do when they go out, make disciples, form communities, communities that multiply, plant churches that plant churches, but we haven't multiplied. We've been in existence 40 years, and we felt like God was just putting that burden on our hearts that we should multiply, so we committed to multiplying. In the middle of that conversation, God opened an opportunity to purchase the, the Southwood campus for a really low, low amount. And so we bought it in 2007, 2008, the recession hit. Those of you who lived through it, it's like, whoa. If we had known that a recession was coming, we wouldn't have had the courage to start a new campus. And yet, God provided for us. We, our budget was always in the black. God always provided for us. Why? I believe because we were in the center of his will. We were making disciples and we were multiplying churches. Southwood grew, filled one service, filled two services, Anderson was full, South was full. We felt like God was calling us to multiply again. And so we uh, started the Creekside campus, started in Pebble Creek Elementary. And then we found property and were able to build a building. Creekside has been going since 2015. They now have two completely full services, wondering if they need to start a a third service. Their uh, children's area is completely packed. The youth ministry is packed. Uh, They need another building just to meet the need down there. And the reason we went south is because in College Station, that's where the growth is. And what we realized is there's no one planting churches in the south end of town where all of these houses are going up, these huge housing developments. If you, if you live in Houston, you drive by the, the old speedway. I mean, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses. If you live out toward Castlegate, it's growing further south. Go down Welburn Road, there's just that, that south end of town, and nobody's planting there because it's so expensive that the only people who can plant there are established churches. So we've encouraged other churches in our community Plant south, right? That's, that's, where, that's where the population is moving and we need to not be 4,000, 1,000, but 2,000, right? We need to not be underwater. Creekside's full, filling up, bursting at the seams, 2021. Felt like God was calling us to multiply again and in, again, it's like in the middle of this conversation, I got an email about a property that was for sale uh, it's actually the facility that we ended up buying is directly across the street from the original Grace Bible Church. And in fact, um, that original Grace Bible Church a few years back, Pat Coyle went to that property and he found some of our original bricks. How cool is that? Like I'm kind of sentimental, mystical on some of these things. I have one of those bricks in my office. How amazing is that, right? God allowed us to move back into that area. And we went into that area because there's a demographic there that we're not reaching at our other campuses. These are statistics that maybe you guys should know. Um, in the United States of America currently, what is the Hispanic population as a percentage? Anybody, anybody know that? Just like off the top of your head. You'll leave here knowing. Okay, that's fair. 
but now you know, 20%. The United States of America, 20%. In the state of Texas, the Hispanic population is 40%. Hispanics are the majority minority now in the state of Texas. The city of Bryan, Hispanic population is 40%. In that neighborhood, Hispanic population is 40%. How many Hispanic students are at Texas A&M University? Anybody? There's one. 16,000. There's 16,000 Hispanic students. So what that means is, first, right, students will lead in the United States of America. Students will be the leaders in business and government and education and family and culture. Hispanic students are going to be at the very center of that. This is an opportunity to plant a campus that's bilingual, and the hope is to multiply that model into other communities that have significant Hispanic student populations and families to multiply and multiply and multiply. Now, I don't know if God is going to call us to plant another campus here in town. We don't have plans to do that right now. Um, What we do feel like right now is that God is calling us to serve the other churches because God has resourced Grace Bible Church. So, kind of one of our mantras of staff is, if if you can, just give it away, right? Give it away. We want to be generous. We want to share. So we've used our facilities for new church plants. We've let them come in and use our facilities to get started. We uh, give away our curriculum that we've written. We'll share our constitution, our doctrinal statement. We'll give it away. Anything that we've experienced, our, our fellows program, we've handed that template, that model to other churches so they can start having interns and residents and that kind of thing. Like, just give it away. Share it. We feel like what God's called us to right now is to be generous. And to share what we can with the other churches in the community. Will he call us to plant again? I don't know. But right now we feel like be generous. But then second, steward what we have well. And we, have, we have four campuses. Three of those campuses are old. Uh, this campus opened in 1995. So it's almost 30 years old. And so it's old. It's used consistently six days a week, often seven days a week. We have other ministries that come in, community groups that come in. We just want to be generous, use our space. Um, that's true. Southwood Campus, we do the same thing. That's, a, that's an even older facility. Midtown, that's an even older facility. That's our oldest facility. But God gives us these spaces from which we can do ministry. So our ministry is not buildings. Our ministry is people. But we've got to steward well the facilities that we've been given. So I've got a specific challenge for you this morning. As we think about our vision for the future, it's to continue to multiply. That every member would be a spiritual multiplier and that we would multiply churches throughout this nation, throughout the world, or we would resource the other churches that are multiplying. To do that well, we need to steward our current resources well. So this spring, we are launching an an initiative called Project 4x4. So my invitation to you is this. We have four campuses. We've got a project at each campus. Our goal is not to make our campuses fancy. Our goal is that the lights stay on. And, you know, one of my elders actually suggested, he said, Brian, you should preach this sermon with the lights off and a megaphone. Because uh, after 30 years, we literally, the, the, light, the lighting system is getting old. If you were here last semester, our projectors went out a couple times. And again, we're not trying to make it super fancy, but I would invite you if you feel like Grace Bible Church is my home and I want our home to be in good shape so that we can be generous and multiply. Uh, the good news is if you're at Anderson campus, uh, we're first on the list. Just kidding. I'm <laughs> just kidding. But I, th- I thought that was funny. Um, 
But some of our needs are the most urgent. And so uh, if you want to jump in on that uh, project, that's just a specific way that this spring we're leaning in next four months, try and raise a million dollars, a project at each campus over and above so that we can be good stewards. Uh, it's called Project 4x4. If you want to find out more about it, come to our business meeting, Grace Family Gathering tonight. You don't have to be a member. You can come and ask questions and we'll talk about it. Now, back to our point. So, uh, fourth mark of a flourishing church is this. We love God's word. So we have a few pillars here at Grace. Right? Grace of God is revealed in the word of God. The next generation and every nation. Those are our four pillars. We love God's word. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Who's the they? The they is uh, this brand new megachurch that just happened. So, on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Peter preached his first sermon. It was a good one. 3,000 people trusted Christ. Bam! And they're hungry to grow. They, they want to learn. They want to grow. And so every single day, they're listening to the apostles' teaching. They're going from house to house. They're sharing meals together. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. They're remembering the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But they want to learn. They're learning through the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because the word of God is powerful to transform us. That's why we call ourselves grace Bible church. We're a Bible church because the Word of God is at the center of our lives and our worship. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than even a two-edged sword. Pierces as far as the division of joints and marrow, of both bones and marrow, and, and it divides the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? It's just powerful. Or as the prophet Jeremiah said, it, it's like a, a hammer that smashes stone. Right? It can break up the fallow ground. It can transform you. I remember when I first began to learn how to study God's Word for myself, right? not just listen to a sermon or a podcast, but, but dig into the Word and observe and interpret and apply. It's like, wow. And it's a moment where I felt like God's speaking to me, directly to me. When we were looking to hire staff at Midtown, we interviewed our current worship leader there, Samwa Calderon. And Someone said, you know, I, I do, there's one condition, one question I have. When I lead worship, will you, let me, will you let me hold on to my Bible? I was like, sure, why not? He goes, well, some churches don't like it that I lead holding on to my Bible, but I want to lead worship with the Word at the center. So if you ever go to Midtown, when someone leads worship, he's got his one Bible. His Bible's right here in his hand, and he'll open up and read, and he shake his Bible. And it's, you know, it's like, I want the Word right there at the center. I'm like, yeah, Absolutely. Our challenge is this. Let's recommit ourselves to become students of the word, rightly dividing the word with excellence, understanding the word, not passively just receiving the word. You need to be in a Bible study with other believers. And not just a group where you share what's happening during the week or you just confess your sins, but where the word is centered and you're letting the word speak to you and guide your discipleship. If you're not in a group where you study the word, let us help you find a group. Or if you're in a group and the word is not at the center, let us help resource you to put the word of God at the very center of your study, at the center of your life. Listen to this description of, of Ezra. I love this. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. 
It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So I, I, I love that progression. So Ezra wanted to know God's word, but also Ezra wanted to live it. He wanted it to change his life, but then also he wanted to share it. He wanted to be, in New Testament terminology, uh, a disciple maker. Fifth mark of a flourishing church is we depend upon the Holy Spirit. Turn back to chapter 1 of the book of Acts and verse 4. Gathering his disciples together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So why did Jesus tell his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit? Because what he was going to call them to do was so far beyond their capacities that they needed God's Spirit to give them courage and strength and power. In fact, look down in verse 8, chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So here are, here are 11 guys and a few more followers around, maybe 100 people who've never traveled more than about 100 miles. And Jesus says, you know, you're going you're gonna to tell people about me. Well, what happened when Jesus told people who he was? He got crucified, right? And so when Jesus was first captured, where did his disciples go? They ran away. They were fearful. He says, well, here's what's going to happen. You are going to tell people about me. And they're going to persecute you, and they're going to imprison you, and they're going to take your properties, and some of you they're going to actually even kill. Keep going. And you're going to do it not just in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and you're going to do it all across the globe. I know you've never traveled more than about 100 miles. You're all from little tiny towns in Galilee, but you're going to take the gospel to all nations, and you're going to do it courageously, and you're going to give your lives for that. You better wait till the Spirit comes, because you won't have the courage to do it, and you won't have the strength to do it. You won't have the wisdom to do it. So then the Spirit came upon them and transform them. Turn to chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed that they is the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, who hated Jesus and who had crucified Jesus and who had now told the apostles, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Stop it. Verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They're like, okay, wait a second, who are these guys? Because, you know, they actually sound like they know some theology, but they didn't go to our seminary. They, they went to the Jesus school. What? That's it. And now they have confidence and they have courage and they have theological wisdom and insight and they're not backing down. They had run away from Jesus. Now they're standing up for Jesus. And they do, in fact, take the gospel, not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, and even to Europe, and to Asia, and to Africa. Because the Spirit of God transformed them, right? Church, that's what we want to be. We want to live lives that are just so different that people say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not normal. 
That's not how John would live on his own. That's not how Becky would live on her own. That, that must be the Spirit of God. Listen to how Paul describes the, the evidence of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Right? The, the fruit or the evidence, the manifestation that the Spirit is present in our lives is this. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says things like these. Church, life is hard. If you become a follower of Jesus, life won't get easier. Life's hard. Genesis 3 tells us that we will experience thorns and thistles. And God doesn't make a promise to us as followers of Jesus that he's just going to rescue us out. He says, no, um, I'll be a good shepherd and I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. But I'm not going to rescue you out of the valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to strengthen you and I'm going to empower you. And so as we walk through this world, we experience all of the difficulties and challenges that everybody else in the world experiences. But we do it with hope. And when we go through all of the trials and tribulations and frustrations and loss and grief of this life, and yet we have hope, God's Spirit transforms us and we go through with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And the world says, wow, that's different. I don't have that. I have fear and anxiety and anger and hatred and resentment and bitterness. I'm not free. What do you have? We say, we went to the school of Jesus. We have the Spirit of God. So we live differently in this broken, fallen world because God's Spirit transforms us. We, we want to be a community that's marked by the Spirit. People can't explain our lives other than the Spirit. Sixth, we love one another. So what was the, the first uh, fruit of the Spirit? He says it's love, right? That's first and foremost. Jesus said the same thing, love. Love is first because love is so radical and different. John 13, this is Jesus speaking. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Even as I have loved you. How, how did Jesus love them? He, he gave his life for them. He sacrificed for them. So the, the point uh, in the New Testament is love is not this um, spongy feeling. Love is active. Right? Love is sacrificial. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you also have sacrificial servant love for one another. Remember, the setting of this verse is really illuminating. Um, the disciples have been arguing about who's the greatest, who gets to sit on the right and the left. And then Jesus has his final meal with them. And at the end of the meal, Jesus takes off his robe and he gets down on his hands and knees and he's got a bowl of water and he's got a towel and he begins to move around and he washes all of their feet, right? He takes off their sandals. Their feet are dirty because nobody washed anybody's feet. Their feet are nasty and dirty, and he's scrubbing out the dirt from between their toes, and he's just taking his time, and he's making this really wonderful, socially awkward moment for his disciples, and he's not speeding it up, and they're feeling uncomfortable because Jesus is the teacher, and we should have washed his feet, and we didn't wash his feet. We didn't wash each other's feet. It's just a horribly awkward moment, and he keeps stretching it out like I'm doing. <laughs> and then he rises up at the end and he says, you know, you're not going to get this yet. But what I've done for you, I want you to do for each other. 
Why? Because by this will all men know that you're my followers. If you're like me and you wash each other's feet and you love one another. Why? Because it's not what the world is like. The world's like a gang of feral cats. And they bite and they claw and they scratch and they don't forgive. They hold grudges and they hold resentment and they're competitive and they say, me first, you wherever. And Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to consider or regard one another as more important than yourself. Because when the world sees that, they'll say, yeah, I'm not a part of that, but I want that. I want to be, be a part of that kind of family. By this will all men know that you're my followers if you have love for one another. Seventh, we begin and end in worship. Now, I will tell you, when I was a student at A&M, I went to a Campus Crusade for Christ conference, and uh, Bill Bright, the founder, gave a talk, and he had 17 points. I don't remember what any of the 17 were. I just remember that he had 17 points. That's all I remember from the whole talk. I just want you to know, you're lucky. I only have seven. This is my last point, just seven. And usually if you come on a Sunday, I only have two or three. So I just had a lot to say this morning. So this is the last point. We begin and end in worship. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Verse 35 says, one of them a lawyer, that is a Pharisee who was an expert in the law, he tried to trap Jesus with a question. And he said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. This is called the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission shape our lives as followers of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to love what God loves. You're going to love the lost. You're going to care for the lost. You're going to love his people. You're going to want to serve and sacrifice. Why? Because we become like what we love. And when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we become like the God who loves us and serves us and sacrifices for us. The creator is like that for us. You become like what you love, and when you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, you're gonna love what God loves. So I don't want you to walk out of here feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to do more. What you need to do is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, put, put God back at the center of your life, and I want you to take a few moments and shortly, and I want you to think about, are, are there things that have crept into the center of your life that are preoccupying your affections? because you're gonna become like those things. When we begin and end in worship, we remind ourselves, we remind each other, we speak out to God, how wonderful and beautiful and amazing God is. Right? And we, when we remind ourselves that we fall more deeply in love and God shape, reshapes us and he transforms us. And so I want us to remember, there's so many different things we can become distracted by, and so many things to do, and you're at the beginning of the semester, and you just chase after all these different things, but really only one thing matters. As Mary demonstrated to Martha, sit at Jesus' feet, listen, learn, love Jesus.
So we're going to close in worship in just a second. Uh, but before we do, I'm gonna, I want to leave you with an image. It's, this, is really, this is a good teachable image. This is from the 2016 Olympics, 200-meter uh, butterfly race. So you recognize the guy on the bottom, Michael Phelps, pretty good swimmer at the time. Uh, Chad LaClose from South Africa is the guy on top. And he had kind of been talking trash all uh, week long about Michael Phelps because he wanted to beat Phelps. That was his goal, beat Phelps. And, and LaClose, he was a really good swimmer. This is at the very end of the race. They're about to touch the wall. And where is Phelps looking? He is looking at the wall. Because his goal is to win the race and earn a gold medal. And what was the goal of Chad Close? Beat Phelps. So he took his eye off the wall, and he turned, and he looked at Michael Phelps. And he came in fourth. And Phelps won. Because his eye was on the prize. He kept his eye focused on the prize, right? And so here we are, beginning of the semester, and there are all kinds of things that can pull your attention and your affections away and distract you from the one thing that really matters. And that is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do, you'll love what God loves. So that's what we want to do this morning, is give us an opportunity just to set our affections again on the God who's created us and redeemed us. So as we close, I'd like you to bow with me. And just take a moment and ask God, through his spirit, to search your heart. Is there any affection that's creeping in that's pulling your love away from your creator and redeemer? Just let God's spirit speak to you briefly, and then we'll close in worship. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, in this moment, for each of us, personally, individually, that you would, through your Spirit, speak. And if there's anything in our lives that's pulling our affection away from you, that you'd make that clear. I pray that you would teach us the foolishness of, of lesser loves. And I pray, Father, that this semester we would fall more and more deeply in love with you. Lord, I pray that in that process, you would just break our hearts for those who don't have what we have. Just energize us and give us courage through your spirit. Cause us to live differently. Cause us to love the things that you love. Cause us in particular to love the lost. We consecrate ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to you. We love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name. Amen.